Dueling Eagles, written by Chad Clabo, read by Derek Durlam, produced by Studio Conundrum, copyright 2017, Chad Clabo. Chapter 6 It wasn't very long after the first explosion that both the lights and the telephones went down, and not only the cellular devices, but the landlines as well. If it wasn't for the daylight streaming in through the cavernous windows the three had gathered around, they would almost certainly be working in the dark. What on earth could have caused this? asked Director Rodriguez. Hell if I know, replied Jack. Pardon my French, Miss Abby. You have any ideas, Ned? Well, said Ned, if the entire electrical grid went down, that might cut the power to the cellular towers, but there should be some kind of backup, and the phone line should still work despite an electrical grid failure. That's one reason the government offices continue to use landlines. And what about the explosions? asked Jack. I don't know, IEDs? Domestic terrorism seems pretty unlikely, but... Ned paused barely a second. Yeah, I don't know. What are we going to do? Director Rodriguez was beginning to look panicked. We're cut off from the military if we can't talk to General Everly. Wait, interrupted Ned. You've got to have some kind of alternate way to contact the General. He wouldn't have left you here without some kind of military support, would he? The director moved to take her seat. He wanted to assign an entire platoon here for security, but I wouldn't hear it. I made them set up. Then her eyes became wide. At the old health services clinic. And where exactly is this clinic? asked Ned. The old clinic was just a few blocks away from the administrative building. Ned, Jack, and the director soon found themselves in an emergency stairwell walking down three stories with only the built-in flashlight from Ned's phone. At least the flashlight function on your phone still works, said Jack. A silver lining in every dark cloud. For as long as the batteries hold out anyway, replied Ned. Hate to rain on your silver lining, Jack, but I'm not feeling so optimistic right at the moment. They emerged from the stairwell into the ground floor lobby. With even internal communications out, no one should have been expecting them, but a crowd had gathered in the lobby, and when they saw the director, they swarmed. Listen up, everybody, said the director. I want you all to remain calm. I'm going to visit the clinic in order to coordinate with the military staff there and reestablish communication with Fort Bliss. We'll figure out what's going on, and I'll return with more information. Private Phillips, Ned yelled to his driver, you're with us. As they exited the building, they could see several clouds of smoke rising off in the distance. Phillips, said Ned, do you know where this old clinic is? Yes, sir, I've been there before, and if I'm not mistaken, it's right over there. Phillips pointed as they all turned to see a cloud of smoke rising only a short distance away. All right, said the director, let's not waste any more time. All four of them climbed into the military vehicle and they proceeded to the clinic, but as soon as they arrived, they knew it was too late. There was only a burning pile of rubble where the clinic had once stood. Chapter 7 Well, what do we do now? Jack looked thoroughly frustrated. Phillips, said Ned, see if you can get the vehicle's communications system working. I'm going to scout the area for survivors. I'll come with you, said Jack. You'll be okay here, Abby? He asked the director. Yes, you two go on. I'll stay here with Private Phillips. Ned looked back at the director. While none of them were dressed for reconnaissance, her suit skirt and heeled shoes made her outfit especially unsuitable. We won't be long, said Ned, as he and Jack began to walk the perimeter of the building. 
The building looked as if it had been built mostly with steel and concrete, but there must have been other materials used within, as pockets of flame appeared among the piles of broken concrete and mangled steel. The destruction wasn't confined to the foundation of the building either, as the debris spread out into the street and surrounding buildings. Ned didn't think that anything could have survived this kind of destruction. Over here, Jack shouted. Ned ran to join him. There were two bodies on the grass. The first looked burned beyond recognition. The other lie face down, looking mostly unharmed. Here, help me turn her over. As they rolled the body, they could see she was injured much more severely on the other side. Her face was covered in cuts and bruises, and her uniform was bloodied and torn. Then she began to stir. Do you know where you are? asked Ned. Do you know what happened? No, the soldier replied. We were just coming back, and... She opened her eyes wide and started looking around. What happened? She's not going to be of much help, said Jack. No, said Ned. Let's get her back to the vehicle. Maybe we can get her to a hospital. But what if she has, you know, internal injuries? They're not going to get any better if we leave her here either. Ned waited for a reply that didn't come. I can carry her by myself, but I'd appreciate your help. Okay, okay, but remember, this was your idea. Private Phillips was still working with the vehicle's communication system when they returned. You found someone, the director said as they approached, carrying the soldier between them. She needs medical care, Ned replied. You have any ideas? I have a medic on staff back at the admin building, or there's a hospital just a block over. It's your call, director. The director took a closer look at the soldier. I think we better get her to the hospital. That sounds good, said Ned. Phillips? Yes, sir, replied Phillips. I know the way. Then he put the vehicle into reverse and headed back the way that they had entered. Did you get that comm system working, Phillips? Asked Ned. No, sir. The only thing that seems to be working is the GPS. You'd think they'd put some kind of emergency radio into these things, said Jack, once again looking thoroughly disgusted. Um, sirs? Ma'am? Private Phillips looked over to his passengers. Yes, Private, the director replied. I just remembered. I think there might be a radio in the back. In the back? Yes, ma'am. In the storage compartment. In the back. Chapter 8 It didn't take long for the group to drop the wounded soldier at the hospital. After that, they returned to the director's office with the emergency radio. The radio was in a green steel box about the size of a briefcase. The Army was still giving basic training in the use of standard communication radios, so it didn't take Private Phillips too long to get it working. Because it ran on a standard 12-volt system, the director sent a volunteer to commandeer a couple of car batteries so that they could keep it powered for an extended period of time. Have you gotten a hold of the general yet? Director Rodriguez asked the private. Phillips had been working his way up the chain of command. I think so, ma'am, the private replied. I've given his lieutenant the rough details. We're waiting for him now. I think your name is the only one that would have gotten him on the radio. It sounds like they're almost as in the dark as we are. Well, that's not a good sign. Jack was slouching on a brown leather couch that ran along the far wall of the director's office. One other thing, the private added. The lieutenant says that we are only to use first names or code names during radio communication when possible, because while these frequencies are reserved for military use, they're simple analog transmissions that might be listened in on. I'd say he was paranoid under different circumstances, said the director. She looked over to Ned and Jack. Jack shrugged his shoulders. All right, she said. I understand. They waited a few more minutes before the radio buzzed back to life. Sean, is that you? 
the voice crackled on the other end of the radio call. Yes, Private Phillips answered into the radio. Ned was sure the private almost finished by adding, sir, but he resisted. Yes, this is Sean. I'm here with Ned, Jack, and Abby. Who knew the private had a first name? Jack said quietly to Ned. All right, I'm going to keep this short and sweet. Again, the voice from the radio spoke. Abby, I want you to prepare your people for evacuation. I'm going to send trucks out there to get you. We can't be sure that that location is safe. I don't think so. The director sounded adamant. I'm not going to abandon my offices without some idea of what is going on. Just what is going on, Don? Don, Ned thought. Is that a code name? Donato Everly. Ned remembered the general's full name. Ned didn't think he'd ever been on a first-name basis with a general, but here he was. While we're not exactly certain what is going on, the general continued, we do know that the explosions were caused by missiles fired from the hills outside of Juarez from the Mexican side of the border. Missiles? The director sounded shocked. Don, what is going on? Like I already said, we are not exactly certain. Our intelligence about what's going on in Juarez is obviously lacking. With communication out, we haven't been able to reach any of our assets there, and I'm not getting anything from any other sources. The general was being deliberately vague with them, but Ned knew that he probably meant the CIA wasn't giving him any information. What we need is someone on the ground who could tell us what is going on, but I don't have anyone to spare. Ned had a million questions that he knew he shouldn't ask on an open communications line. He condensed it down to one. Don, this is Ned. Is that something that I could do? What? asked the general. Go to Mexico? Why would you want to do that? I'm supposed to be, Ned paused to think. My boss's eyes and ears here. I can't very well report to him if I don't know anything myself. Also, you said you needed someone on the ground. I don't know, Ned. This is highly irregular. Under normal circumstances, I wouldn't dream of it. But maybe this isn't such a bad idea. I pulled your record before our meeting. You might be qualified for this kind of work, but you'll need someone along for backup. Maybe Sean could go with you. With all due respect, said Private Phillips, maybe you should find someone who knows Juarez better than I do. Uh, someone who could act as a guide? That's probably a good idea. I'll see what I can do. Wait a minute. Jack had remained silent up until this point. Maybe I could go. I don't have any special qualifications, but I do know Juarez like the back of my hand. Who is that? asked the general. That's Jack, replied the director. You know, from Austin. All right, that might work. The general paused. Okay, Abby, your people can stay there for now. I'm sending a couple of trucks with supplies for you. I'm also going to send someone to brief and equip Ned and Jack before they leave. They should be there in less than an hour. Don't call me again until then. Over and out. That was abrupt, said the director. It certainly was, replied Ned. Jack, what do you think? Is he holding something back from us? Well, Ned, I'm sure there's a whole lot he's not telling us, but we'll find out soon enough. There is one thing that I do know, though. Jack looked at Ned with a sly smile. It looks like you and I are going to Mexico. Chapter 9 the military trucks were carrying more than supplies for the administration building. There must have been 50 soldiers as well. They set up a perimeter around the building and even installed some kind of anti-missile device. Perhaps the most important things that the general sent were two satellite phones. 
one for the director and one for Ned and Jack to take to Juarez. As promised by the general, there was someone sent to brief and outfit Ned and Jack for their reconnaissance work in Mexico, one Captain Smith. He told them the plan for their insertion into Juarez, how to contact the general once they were there, and how to get back into El Paso if they couldn't be extracted. More or less, they were expected to find out who launched the missiles and why, and to establish communication with one of the general's contacts in Juarez. There was a pile of old clothes for them to choose from so that they would blend in better with the population of Juarez. Suits and ties didn't seem to be the uniform of the day in old Mexico. Ned found a pair of blue jeans and a beat-up jacket with a broken zipper. It would be plenty warm in daylight, but the jacket might come in handy if they couldn't find shelter for the night. You're going to want one of these, said Jack, as he handed Ned a cowboy hat that used to be white, but was now closer to a muddy yellow color. Fortunate or not, the hat was a bit too snug for Ned. Doesn't fit. What about this one? Ned asked, holding up a weathered leather hat that was round and had a dark green hue to it. It'll do. You know, most Texans have a much better hat sense than you do. Jack was looking Ned up and down like he was suddenly out of place. Your instincts are correct, Ned replied. My family was originally from Pennsylvania. My dad was stationed in Texas when I was in high school, but before that, I had never set foot in Texas. Well, I might have known. Still, if you played high school football in Texas, I might be able to overlook your questionable origins. Third string quarterback good enough for you, Jack? I suppose it'll have to be. He didn't look entirely convinced. Jack had removed his tie, changed his shoes, and dirtied his shirt, but otherwise hadn't changed clothing. Still, Jack looked completely different than he had a few hours ago. His shaggy hair was now completely disheveled, and it looked like he had suddenly become unshaven. The somewhat polished look of Jack's ill-fitting suit was completely gone, as it now looked far too big, terribly worn, and completely out of place, along with his shabby shoes and dirty shirt. If you both are ready, Private Phillips had just entered the room. Then it's time to go. They drove the several blocks up Alameda Avenue to what was the last official checkpoint on the deportation route. Phillips had been joined by Captain Smith, who was now driving the vehicle. Once they arrived, Ned marveled at the sight before them. Looking down at what used to be a four-lane restricted access highway, it now looked like a river of people. There were manned guard towers every hundred meters and tall concrete barriers on either side of the road, leaving nowhere for the sea of people to go except forward. That's where we're inserting you, Captain Smith pointed to a guard tower by the highway. You'll have to drop down from the barrier and blend in with the crowd. The captain had previously informed them that Mexico had cameras covering the entire border with the United States, and that anywhere they choose to cross would certainly be monitored. Blending in with the deportees was really the only surefire way to enter Juarez without being noticed. Even this plan relied on the assumption that the Mexican authorities would be too overwhelmed by the mass influx of deportees to notice a couple of people out of place. The general had supplied them with official deportation papers, but, despite being authentic, they were based on phony information. Under scrutiny, they would not hold up. Wait a moment. Captain Smith touched his earpiece. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh-huh. Damn. Okay, guys, we have a bit of a situation here. Now what's going on? Jack seemed to be losing most of his charm as the day went on. The advance team just secured the Juarez side of the bridge. Was there trouble? Asked Ned. No, sir, no trouble. Zero trouble, actually. That's what's strange. 
the Juarez side of the bridge was completely abandoned. So how does that change our plan? It doesn't, said the captain. The general says we should go ahead with the insertion. In fact, this will make it a lot easier. Without Mexican officials, we're just going to push the deportees out onto the streets of Juarez, but that means there won't be anyone to monitor you two going in. But wait, said Ned, without the Mexican officials, where are all these people going to go? I know that 14,000 sounds like a lot of people, but Greater Juarez has a population of over 2 million. 14,000 more won't significantly increase the population. These people will probably spend the night on the streets, but they'll find somewhere to stay eventually, and long term it'll be better than staying at the relocation center. But Captain, Ned started again. No, sir, the captain interrupted. I have to insist. This is the general's decision, and we have our orders. We're going ahead. Now, are the two of you ready to go? Chapter 10 Ned and Jack climbed the stairs to the guard tower and quickly dropped to the ground. With the sun still bright in the western sky, there was no way to be completely covert, but no one seemed to pay too much attention to the two men dropping in from over the edge of the barrier. Jack made some comment about the stupid soldiers dropping them over the wall without even bothering to check their paperwork in perfect Mexicano Spanish, and although neither Jack nor Ned looked all that Mexican, suddenly Jack looked like this was exactly where he was supposed to be. What are you, some kind of chameleon? Ned asked Jack in a hushed voice. Come on, said Jack, not answering. Let's get ahead of anybody who might have seen us drop in. There'll only be more questions. They pushed their way through the crowd as quickly as they could without raising suspicion. There was less than a mile to the drawbridge. The drawbridge was the new border crossing built at the same time as the deportation camps. Nearly all other border crossings with Mexico and El Paso had been closed, and the drawbridge had been built as an exclusive deportation path into Mexico's new deportee acceptance center on the old campus of the Autonomous University of Ciudad Juarez. It wasn't in actuality a drawbridge. There were actually two massive wooden gates that opened or closed the bridge. Ned could see the gates pressed flat against the side of the highway as they approached the crossing. Once they arrived, it was just as Captain Smith had said. There were no Mexican officials to be seen. There were, it seemed, a company of United States soldiers on either side of the highway beyond the Mexican side of the border, but they were maintaining their stations just outside of United States territory. As Ned and Jack proceeded into Juarez, the streets looked almost abandoned except for the new arrivals. Ned knew that the Juarez neighborhoods near the border had become as bad as those in El Paso. Again, the local economy was nearly non-existent, and crime was rampant. Where do you think we should start? asked Ned. Well, Jack replied, the Pronoff district is just ahead of us here. When Juarez is doing well, it tends to attract the city's more progressive thinkers. You mean the party crowd. Ned knew that part of town that almost every city had. That's right, and while right now that part of the city is filled with criminals, I think we're looking for a more organized kind of troublemaker. I suggest we head downtown, Centro, the locals call it. It's west of here. It's the commercial center of the city, and the place we're most likely to find some kind of community shelter without walking forever. Ned could see the crowd starting to break up. We should tell these people to stick to larger groups, said Ned. They're less likely to be preyed upon if they stick together. I hear you, Ned, but if we're supposed to be blending in, we don't really want to set ourselves up as some kind of leaders down here now, do we? Ned knew that Jack was right, but he really wished there was something he could do to help these people. But maybe we can use that idea of a big group to help us get to where we need to go. 
Jack motioned to some of the crowd. You see those folks? I bet they're just waiting for someone to tell them where to go. Jack didn't wait for Ned's approval. You all there. Maybe we should stick together. Safety in numbers and all that. Why don't we head downtown? It's this way. Chapter 11 Jack led the group downtown, stopping to ask any locals if they knew where he could find shelter. The group they were leading consisted of two families with children and one married couple. Jack had not only regained his charm, but had once again become a chameleon in Ned's eyes, speaking perfect Mexicano Spanish to the Juarez locals and switching back to English for the group of deportees. Many of the deportee children were more fluent in English than Spanish, and Jack probably would have gotten their entire life stories out of them if it hadn't been such a brief walk downtown. As they approached the city centro, there was more foot and automobile traffic on the streets. Jack kept asking the locals about shelter, and while some of them pointed the group to local churches or to city hall, many were suggesting a warehouse shelter just west of downtown. Jack kept following the directions he was given, and before long, they arrived. It was more of a complex of warehouses than just a single one. It seemed odd to Ned that the warehouses were seemingly new construction in this old part of the city. The long shadows of the evening sun had thrown the eastern side of the building into shade. There was a large sign there on the corrugated steel siding that said, Esperamos Centro de Socorro, the We Hope Relief Center, thought Ned. Not a very elegant name in either language. As they entered the building, Ned could see that beyond a small reception area, there were hundreds of cots, and wondered if this was their everyday setup. While it's true it had been standard procedure for the past several months to send 400 deportees into Juarez daily, Ned was under the impression that many of those were being bussed by the Mexican government into other parts of the country. Still, he supposed a room like this could fill up pretty quickly after several weeks of people coming in. In fact, he was somewhat surprised that the room wasn't already crowded with the city's homeless. Except for a few people milling around the periphery, the warehouse appeared almost empty. Ned was now happy that they had moved so quickly across the city. With 14,000 more behind them, he was glad that they had found shelter for at least this small group of deportees. Several members of Ned's group began to unfurl the papers they had been issued prior to leaving the United States to show to the man who was sitting at the desk. Jack was already speaking to the man in a quiet voice that Ned couldn't quite understand. Good news, everybody, Jack said as he turned around. They've got room for all of us. You don't need to show the man any papers, just sign the sheet and find the bed that matches the number on the sheet. Jack had already signed for both himself and for Ned. So we're spending the night here, I take it? asked Ned. Unless you got a better idea, Jack replied. I figure now we have this group settled, we should head back downtown and start making inquiries while the rest of this lot is finding supper. Maybe we can find supper too while we're at it. Isn't that how this spy stuff works? It was beginning to annoy Ned how Jack was taking the lead at almost every step. Still, he wasn't doing anything that Ned didn't agree with. All right, Jack, you take the lead. There were now dozens more people heading into the building. As Ned and Jack were leaving, four men who were all dressed alike approached them. Ned could suddenly feel the barrel of a gun pressed into his back. We heard the American army was sending spies, one of the men said. So nice of you to come to our doorstep. Dueling Eagles Written by Chad Claybo Read by Derek Durlam Produced by Studio Conundrum Copyright 2017, Chad Claybo